Calvin Coolidge was the 30th President of the United States, and he had the nickname of Silent Cow. The historians are still in debate whether he came upon this nickname Silent Cow uh, naturally or whether he actually inculcated it in his life. In probably one of the longest sentences he ever spoke, he said, if you don't say anything, you won't be called upon to repeat it. <laughs> a matron seated next to him at dinner one evening said to him, I made a bet today that I could get you to say more than two words. And he turned to her and replied, you lose. His reticence to speak was so great that the poet and screenwriter Dorothy Parker, upon learning that Coolidge had, had, was dead, asked, how do they know? <laughs> On one occasion, Coolidge went to hear a preacher, a particular preacher that he wanted to hear him preach a sermon. Afterwards, he was asked, what the sermon was about, and he replied, sin. Asked what the preacher said about sin, he said he was against it. Now it may have been all the preacher said about sin, and it may not have been Coolidge just being Coolidge saying he was against it. Paul would argue that that's not all there is that there is actually something much greater. It is not enough that we are against sin. But the issue is more than that. The issue is why are we against sin? And I believe in this passage we have the answer. The answer is found in there is something to come. It's to be found in the future. Paul has shifted in his language in this chapter, in this section, from the, the military terms that we had seen um, in the, the paragraphs previous to this, and now he switches to an imagery of agriculture. There, there will be a harvest, a harvest that reflects how people have lived in this life. And I believe that this is tied tightly to what Paul will say later on in a letter after the letter to the Galatians, the letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, where Paul speaks of that which people live. We live the lie. In verse uh, Romans chapter 1, he says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were doctrine. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And then he says, they dishonored God, they exchanged the truth for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul says, it is a mistake 
literally, I think you could uh, translate this, not literally from the Greek, but we could tra translate it into modern vernacular, make no mistake. Don't deceive yourselves. God will not be mocked. We cannot say to God, I can do whatever I want and I will never be held accountable. There are even believers, Christians, professing believers who say, I can be happy, I can be fulfilled, I can be successful in my life without spiritual holiness. But that, I believe, again, is the essence of the lie. Worshiping, serving the creature rather than the creator. I did enjoy the movie about Nelson Mandela, the movie Invictus. And in that movie, and it's true to his life, Mandela kept the, the memory, he memorized the poem by English poet William Ernest Henley, which has the title Invictus. And he used that when he was in jail to, to keep himself going, when he was in doing the prison labor for all of those years that he was, was jailed for his activism. But the final verses of the final lines of that poem, he, it says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And Paul would say, no. No, no one is a captain of their own soul. No one is the master of their own fate. No one is their own champion. No one is their own savior. And if we believe as Christians that there is anything in that, we've already seen that it is by faith alone, through the grace of God, that we are saved. But it is also by faith alone and by grace of God that we are sanctified. No one is his own master or the captain of his soul. And yet, Paul says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Literally, mocked means to turn up your nose at God. In 2 Chronicles, we, we read about this in the time of Zedekiah, king of Judah. It, it says they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Jehovah arose. That's what they did as they thumbed their noses at God and said, we, we do not need you. They despised his words. They scoffed at his messengers. And to mock God is to make light of the message of God's grace and His mercy. And we treat it in a feigned manner. Usually people, when they mock, they're, 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 they're after a laugh. They're, they're, they're wanting people to, to kind of giggle at their scorn and contempt of God. And they, they do it in a mimicking way or, or a, a, an imitating way to make fun. Yesterday... Martha and my son and I were out uh, selling some of our woodcrafts, and we had our little pop-up tent, and we were showing a couple some of the things that we had made, and the, the somehow in the discussion it came up that I'm a pastor of a church, and that kind of raised some eyebrows, and they're a little joking, and okay, fine. And as they looked at the things, the wife really wanted to buy the bottle opener, and the husband said, you know, I don't need one of those. And she said, yes, someday you're going to wake up and you're, you're going to need a bottle opener, and you wish we had bought it. And he said, okay, so I'll stand there and I'll pray to God and say, I need a bottle opener. That's mocking. I don't know if he was mocking me or God or both. But it's, it's that kind of thing. 
And Paul is saying, you're not taking God's warning seriously. Because the issue that he's dealing with here is not simply, is it funny and we can kind of shrug and giggle about it. He is speaking of ultimate issues. He is speaking of the end time at the day of judgment. The, the imagery is agricultural. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The imagery is this planting, planting seeds or planting plants and reaping, gathering, realizing a harvest. Perhaps thinking of Genesis chapter 8, and perhaps this is why God made this pronouncement in Genesis 8 so clear. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease. There is a time for planting, and yes, there is a time for reaping. The imagery lasts through the generations. And it's a truism. It sounds, and some people make it as a nursery rhyme almost. You reap what you sow, and it's, it's true. If you sow or plant wheat, you're expecting that wheat is going to come up. If you plant strawberry plants, you're not expecting to get blueberries. It, it, it is a truism. But the, that's the imagery, but the analogy is cause and consequence. Your life choices will determine the life harvest. Your choices, your attitudes will come back to you in terms of reaping. Sowing is your personal actions and your conduct, your attitude. Reaping is the consequences that result from that. Perhaps you've heard, and I believe it's a true principle, the harvest principle. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. So a character reap a destiny. And I don't know who wrote that originally, but Paul would say, yes, that last word is where I'm pointing. A destiny, a legacy, the eternal harvest that you will reap. The depth of this, I think, is illustrated in verse 8. The one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. The, the one who sows, I, I believe firmly that he is speaking to Christians, to people within the community of faith. He, he's not speaking simply of unbelievers, but those who have professed to be believers in Christ. But notice, they are sowing to their own flesh. There are those who take us back into Jesus' parable in the gospel, sowing in good soil and sowing in bad soil. But I, I believe when he says he's sowing to his own flesh, what we have there is it's to the person or thing that the sowing is done for. In other words, who will be pleased or who will be satisfied by the action of the sowing? Well, to sow to the flesh is your flesh. You as a person, your natural person, you are the one for whom you are doing the sowing. And you can see by that the, the flesh becomes selfish. It is selfish behavior. It is self-destructive in its ends. 
because it is to our flesh. The sower wishes to gratify himself by his sowing and reaping. The flesh is what rules his actions and his attitudes and his desires in his sowing. And so we see that the source of the temptation is not outside of us. It is not something that lies outside of us, but in us. And as one author has said, it's not an alien principle. It's what is natural to man. Man wants to sow to his own flesh. And guess what? From that same flesh, you reap the, your rewards. We've already seen that up in chapter 5 and verse 19, have we not? The deeds of the flesh. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. Sexual immorality, idolatry, envy, strife. And Paul calls it here corruption. Or some of your translations have destruction. But please know that this word does not mean annihilation. You've heard people, I, I heard people at work all the time, you know, live life with gusto because this is all there is. That's not true. When Paul says corruption, he is looking at something that is lasting and yet it is a gradual, means a gradual decay. It's a decomposition as a, a corpse is decomposing. He says, from the flesh, this is what you will reap. A decomposing of your physical, spiritual, mental life. And here he's looking at the judgment day, the great day when God will judge the thoughts and intentions and the actions of all. As the author A.R. Fawcett wrote, not an arbitrary punishment of fleshly mindedness, but it's natural fruit. There are those who accuse God. God, you know, your God is too stern. He's, he's, he's too uptight. He, he wants to punish everything. Paul hasn't really brought God into the discussion yet. He is saying this is what naturally results from you sowing to your own flesh. But we've already seen that conflict in Paul Heavenly in his writings. The flesh against the desires of the Spirit. He writes to the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. You see the parallels instantly, do you not? Sowing to the flesh has a parallel. Sowing to the Spirit. The Spirit is the element. The Spirit it is that element in which your spiritual life is sown. And from the Spirit, that same Spirit, He is the source. He, he, he is the fountain of a resurrected life. You will reap eternal life. He is looking at the end of life, and yet the, the language and the wording is that of a continuous journey. That we know that we can enjoy some of those fruits here. The fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, those things that He brings, even in this life now. So even as Paul has that you know, yet to come, that there is that now aspect to, to this. It's a living union. It's not meant to have breaks. It's not meant to have pauses where we say, well, I don't feel like walking with the Spirit. Now it's meant to be continuous because it's a life of union with God's Holy Spirit. <coughs> Picture in your mind the two harvests contrasted here. 
On the one hand, one sows seeds of mistrust in his business, perhaps doing little things behind people's backs or communicating to his fellow workers that we're going to cut corners here or there. And what does he reap? Well, he can destroy trust, but he may destroy his own career. He may even bankrupt his own company. Or one who sows seeds of resentment in a marriage. Little things, little irritations, little things that cause people to wonder, and what does he reap? Loneliness, divorce, dysfunctional families. I think I agree with Chuck. The idea of a Christian comic is kind of a, I don't know, weird thing. But there was a comedian named Jeff Allen, and he wrote or spoke, most of us spend the first six days of each week sowing wild oats, and then we go to church on Sunday and pray for our crop failure. Some of us live like that. We, we don't ask the Lord, lead us not into temptation. We're welcoming the temptation. We just don't want God to bring a harvest of what we've sown. And I know many well-meaning Christian parents hide, I think, behind Proverbs 22.6. And I say it like that because I sat where some of you are sitting now, Probably 25 years ago, one of Chuck's early sermons, at least in my memory, spoke about Proverbs 22.6, where parents would say, this is the promise from the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we know that they say, oh, now he's sowing his wild oats. Now he's kind of having his fun, but we trained him upright and he will not depart well, I think the operative word in, in the verse is even, even when he is old. That means he's continuing in that. He's continuing to walk by the Spirit. He's continuing to keep in step with the Spirit. But it, even then, I would ask you to read verse 8 of that same chapter. It says, he who sows iniquity reaps vanity. So you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. But on the other hand, one who follows the Spirit's leading, one who follows Christ's Holy Spirit, keeps in step with Him and the things that He's teaching and leading, the truth that He's leading us into, we will be literally the men that He speaks of in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the seat of sin, path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. There is the sowing to the flesh, but the one who would delight in the law of the Lord, the one who would meditate on His law day and night, He is the one who reaps. He is the one who is like the plant, tree firmly planted. He is the one who yields its fruit. He is the one whose leaf does not wither. And so the one who follows the Spirit's leading and sacrificing time, energy, money for his family will reap a family that enjoys love and joy and peace. The one who lives for God's pleasure by staying pure to his spouse 
will reap the rewards of a happy home. The one who reconciles with the strange relatives. The one who works heartily on the job as giving honor to the Lord in everything he does. Yes, he may not have all the money. He may not have the prestige. He may not have the title. He may not have the success. But he will reap a harvest of righteousness. The flesh or the spirit it seems pays back the sower for their service. The question is, is that reaping that service going to be corruption or destruction? Or will it be life eternal? We are expected, even as Paul has said, we are saved by faith alone. We are expected to have works that evidence that faith. And yes, even that evidence should be something that results from that which we are commanded to do. Because there will be a day, Paul says in Romans 2, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous, righteous judgment of God, He will render to every man according to his deeds. You reap what you sow. But there is encouragement in these verses. There is that which, which Paul brings to us in verse 9. And let us not do, lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow in all the due, All is due to the motion of God in intervening for us, in strengthening us, in calling us to walk by the Holy Spirit. But at just the right moment, we shall reap. At the time appointed for the harvest, we shall reap. John Calvin wrote, The undeserved kindness of God appears in the very act of honoring the works which His grace has enabled us to perform. By promising to them a reward to which they are not entitled. See, it's all of God doing this. It is all of God causing us to desire to walk by the Spirit, keeping us, watching over us, guiding us, guarding us. We could translate this, you must sow to the Spirit, therefore do good. You, you must walk with the Spirit, therefore do good. It, it, it's a sustained work. It, there's nothing here that says walking by the Spirit is easy. It, it, it's hard. Paul knows. He's, he's saying to us, let's not lose heart. Why? Because he knows we're prone to lose heart. Why does he say, if we do not grow weary? Because he knows we're going to get tired. There is a hard work between the sowing and the reaping, is there not? I've never lived on a farm, but we visited the farm with my, where my grandparents lived. And you look out over the soybean field and there's no end. And he was a dairy farmer. You don't get a day off on a dairy farm. Morning and night, you've got to be there. You've got to milk. It's hard work to keep going, sowing and waiting for the harvest. But Paul says, it's not just me saying, do good. But he says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow faint. Let us not, literally it says, be slack in our doing good. Years ago, and I cannot remember the passage, 
I'm not entirely sure, but I believe it was a sermon, uh, one of the early sermons recorded on cassette tape of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was talking about two acquaintances of his. One was a 38-year-old man who had been on the mission field. And he was discouraged and weary, and he had come back, and he said to Martin Lloyd-Jones, I, I, can't, I can't do the Welsh, I'm sorry. I've had my day. But he also had an acquaintance in his congregation who was 83 years old. And she was serving the Lord and doing good to all. She was helping wherever she found a place to be and minister. And there were those who said, you're 83, you deserve to take a break. And she said, God is not finished with my working. God has not told me that it's time for me to retire. A 38-year-old, I've had my day. An 83-year-old, God has not told me to stop working. We will grow tired. We will get discouraged. We do get sidetracked. We do get, to use a modern word, I guess, burned out. So how do we keep on keeping on? Well, perhaps some of you, like me, thought of Isaiah chapter 40. It's a beautiful verse that was introduced, probably one of the first Old Testament verses that was pointed out to me as a young believer. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. But I think if we just go to verse 31 of chapter 40, we miss what Isaiah has laid out before us in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He gives strength to the weak. It is God who will strengthen us for the work that he's given us to do. It is God that will give us and draw us up and give us that strength. He gives power to the faint. It is true. And to him who has no might, the scripture says, he does increase strength. Remember when James speaks of this very same thing. He talks about the harvest. And he says, do not grow weary. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, James is like Paul. He's got his eyes. There is that day. There is that coming day. It is why we ought to be against sin. But it's also why we ought to be about keeping on, keeping on for the Lord. We sometimes, again, people want to say it's because of our modern, um, you know, the, the, the instant gratification society, uh, the society of our day, the civilization that we live in, the, you know, the drive-in meals. You know, I want it now. I don't want to be the last car in line. I want to be the first. I want to have instant results now. But if we're taking Paul's and James' admonitions we will not evaluate our ministry or our doing good by immediate results. At the appointed time, he says, we will reap if we do not grow weary. And so I believe that he concludes this section from 
chapter 5, verse 13 through 610 by saying, So then, so then let us, or while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I sought to write a definition of doing good, and I was pointed to you know, one definition of doing good would be at least the place to start is where Jesus started in Matthew 25 when He says to His disciples, when you saw Me thirsty, you gave Me something to drink. When you saw Me hungry, you gave Me something to eat. When you saw Me sick, you came to visit Me. When you saw Me without clothing, you clothed Me. That would be a place to start. There are those who need us in everything. Perhaps a definition of doing good is doing every good thing it is possible to do both inside and outside the church. We can see the needs. We can see the opportunities. He says, as we have opportunity. And what does he mean by that? It's not like, okay, I have to search for the opportunities and I'll do that and then I'm done. He says, as long as the appointed time is not yet, you ought to be out doing good. While we live, we have opportunity. And we are to do good to everyone, to all men, believers and unbelievers, inside and outside the church. But I believe that he, he gets our attention. He, he tries to focus us by saying, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That household is a word that's used in the Old Testament for the house of Israel. The New Testament equivalent, I think, of the extended family would be brethren. To the brethren, those believers in Christ. But notice the household defined by faith. Paul is saying this is the fundamental and transforming mark of my people. They are people of faith. They are people who walk in God's new covenant in Christ by faith. Yes, the adage is true. Charity starts at home, but it doesn't end there. Do good to all men as we have the opportunity. William Perkins has written, If men could be persuaded of this, that the time of this life is the seed time, that the last judgment is the harvest, then I would be satisfied. Our life now is seed time. It's not time of harvest yet. Yes, there are some of us who want to rest. We want to earn our retirement. We want to enjoy whatever it might be. But Paul says, no. While you have life, you have opportunity. Now is the seed time. Then there will be the coming harvest. The harvest is the urgency. Again, we because of our instant... Internet and all the things, we know that tomorrow is not guaranteed. The next hour is not guaranteed. Your next breath is not guaranteed. There will be our going to the Lord. There will be that day at His appointed time. But He says, we shall reap in this life to come. But this life now is for sowing. But are we sowing to the flesh and reaping from the flesh? Or are you 
Sowing to the Spirit from the flesh, from the Spirit, we be in eternal life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us, help us to meditate on these things, help us to understand, help us to think these things through to see if they be so. We ask that you would give us that energy and strength, that we would be those people who call upon you in spirit and truth, and we gather around with others of like mind, and you would strengthen us, and you would prepare us, and you would cause us to do good to all. And that we would glorify you, not ourselves. That we would build up your church and be part of that building rather than building up ourselves. We ask that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please rise with benediction from Paul's letter to Titus. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds.